0: Welcome back to New Books in Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. I just had a really interesting conversation with Peter Gottschalk about his book, Religion, Science, and Empire, Classifying Hinduism and Islam in British India, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. When did religion begin in South Asia? Many would argue that it was not until the colonial encounter that South Asians began to understand themselves as religious. In this great new book, Gotshock outlines the contingent and mutual coalescence of science and religion as they were cultivated within the structures of empire. He demonstrates how the categories of Hindu and Muslim were constructed and applied to the residents of the chain poor nexus of villages by the British, despite the fact that these identities were not always how South Asians describe themselves. Throughout this study, we are made aware of the consequences of comparison and classification in the study of religion. engages Jonathan Z. Smith's modes of comparison, demonstrating that seemingly neutral categories serve ideological purposes, and forms of knowledge are not arbitrary in order. Here we observe this work through imperial forms of knowledge production in South Asia, including the roles of cartographers, statisticians, artists, ethnographers, and photographers. In the end, we witness the social consequences of British scientism and its effects on the construction of the category religion in South Asia. In our conversation, we discuss mapmaking, travel writing, Christian theology, the authority of positioning, the census, folklore studies, ethnographies, royal societies, museums, indigenous identifications, and theories for the study of religion. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Peter Gottschalk. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome again to New Books in Religion. Today I'm speaking with Peter Gottschalk about his great new book, Religion, Science, and Empire, Classifying Hinduism and Islam in British India. This is a really wonderful book that's covering a a, a lot of information. We probably won't get to talk about everything, um, but I think that everyone working in the history of religions will surely benefit from this. So thank you for writing a wonderful book. Peter, how are you?
1: Just fine, Christian. How are
0: you? I'm great. Before we get into the the details of of your data here, um, usually what we begin with is kind of how you got interested in the study of religion, um, perhaps uh, influential mentors you had that either reflect your topic that you study or the approach that you take. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up working in this field?
1: Well, I uh, really wasn't interested in the the study of uh, religion per se in uh, certainly in terms of South Asia uh, during my undergraduate work at all. Uh, We had no South Asian studies uh, available at my college and uh, except for one course. And I didn't take it. Um, But uh, we did have a scholar of Islam, John Esposito. And um, and I did uh, audit a course of his. I didn't even take it for full credit. But it was uh, it was influential in part because um, I uh, ended up visiting my parents who were working in Saudi Arabia at the time right after taking that class. Um, That was actually the impetus for my taking that class, and and not long after that, I was in India for six months on my first visit. And so uh, some of those experiences and the background of uh, John's course uh, really had an impact on me. Um, but not enough to make me think that I was going to study religion when I decided to, to enter grad school. Uh, I entered grad school uh, with the idea of studying history and specifically the the history of cultural contact. Um, I was raised during the Cold War uh, when it seemed as though social and cultural misunderstandings were uh, contributing certainly to some of the misunderstandings that might lead to actual all-out war. And so I was interested in in bringing to American students uh, and uh, American readers some insight in how cultural conflict might might have occurred in the past and how that might be relevant for how it might occur in the present. Uh, so I decided that uh, British Empire seemed like uh, a good avenue to pursue this, having given the fact that they were making cultural contacts and impacts all across the globe and uh, by happenstance decided that India seemed like an interesting place to explore that. So when I entered uh, grad school uh, for my master's degree, I was actually a, uh, history, um, in a history program, um, but I soon changed to religion because I realized that uh, to pursue some of these issues of cultural misunderstanding – that religion, not always, but often uh, served as a quick avenue into some of those misunderstandings. And, uh, and frankly, by that time, my, my interest had, had really been uh, sharpened uh, in terms of the study of religion.
0: Now, this, this book, it uh, relates to your, your larger body of work. You've written a lot, and uh, it's interesting kind of hearing your background. You can kind of see perhaps some of the, the motivations that drove you to your subject's um, could you talk a little bit about how this book began to emerge as a book? When did you think of it as a book project? And uh, perhaps also, how does it relate to your earlier work?
1: Well, I had uh, initially done my dissertation work uh, using uh, ethnographic research in Chimpor, uh the village in Bihar, which is at the heart of this, of this book. And um, I made that into my first monograph. And uh, really enjoyed that work and wanted to continue uh, my contact with uh, the people of Chainpur and try to understand more about their lives and and, uh, uh, their uh, social, religious and uh, political circumstances. Um, It happened for personal reasons that I found myself in uh, Cambridge, England for a summer. Um and uh I made an opportunity to go down to British Library whenever I could to see if I could find any historical materials about Chainport. And it turned out that there was a quite a bit more than I could have ever guessed. And so that led to a question of why would there be so much material about this one village in Bihar? Um, and secondly, at the same time, because of my contacts at a you know, working in a small uh, liberal arts college at the time, uh, I became really fascinated by issues of, of science and what I, Um, what I think is important to call scientism, which is the kind of hegemony of science, the authority that science seems to have in um, American society and many other societies. Um, And so uh, I realized as I was finding these materials in the British Library about Chainport, that many of them were really ensconced within a, a scientific framework that seemed to lend it authority in the eyes of some of their readers uh, because of that, uh, that scientific framework.
0: Now within the book, you also are um, talking specifically to different audiences and you're, you're very conscious about this and you make this explicit. I'm wondering if you could talk about the, what you're trying to do or what you're trying to achieve with these different audiences. Um, Talk a little bit about if this was difficult and trying to, to reach everyone uh, in a single monograph. Um, And perhaps um, one of the things that I think is unique about your book uh, in terms of structure is you, you have what you call theoretical interludes. Um, And I think this is, uh, I'm guessing probably related to these kind of audiences you're trying to reach. So could could you talk about kind of the writing the book, how you structured it, the people you're trying to reach? Yeah, uh, I think
1: uh, in terms of audiences, they're, they're, Two matrices of audiences that I was interested in, in getting to first were uh, upper level college students and, and grad students uh, who uh, might find this book to be helpful in terms of their studies, in terms of their introduction to the study of religion in South Asia. Um, the book is intended to try to uh, create a larger context for understanding how the study of religion uh, coalesced uh, in South Asia under the British rule. Um, without focusing on, uh, the armchair scholars, uh, who wrote the books that tend to get the most attention, um, as well as the Orientalists, uh, who also, uh, get much more attention than some of the mid-level officers and, and, and folks on the ground, as well as the Indians, uh, uh, who were writing about chain poor and uh who never had a position at oxford or or never were um, major uh, players in the british administration another set um of of uh audiences would be my my colleagues um in the study of religion in south asia uh because uh, i was thinking of them as i wrote this book uh, as I was getting into the research, I realized that historians of South Asia write in a somewhat of a of a closed universe. Uh, they use the terminology and they have understandings about revenue surveys and about other aspects of administration that that don't get well explained in the in their scholarship because they're writing to one another. Um, and when they write to general audiences or to college student audiences, they, these elements kind of fall out. So I wanted to write um, a uh, description of the ways in which Chainport was being described and and thereby many other rural locations were being described by uh, British administrators, whether they're British or Indian, Um And the ways in which those descriptions fit a larger apparatus, a larger apparatus of intelligence gathering and and knowledge formation that, uh, that many of my colleagues uh, I suspected would not understand completely. So um, that was one set of audiences. Another set of audiences to whom I tried to adjust the book uh, were folks from different audience, from different disciplines. So my first, audience were scholars of religion uh, and I was seeking to try to as I said explain how the uh, study of religion which as a uh, as an acad- the uh, study of religion which as a uh, as an academic discipline really only coalesced in the 19th century um, how it coalesced within the context of imperialism and this is just one small example obviously with this focus on a village I thought to also uh, appeal to uh, scholars uh, who are historians of South Asia um, to, to bring attention to the centrality of religion in many of these British descriptions uh, and British and, uh, and Indian rather descriptions also um, of, of of rural areas like chainpur uh, this has been an ongoing debate in much of the scholarship but uh, not much of the scholarship has focused on the ground level as I was as I was trying to do so uh, those were another set of audiences I was trying to address.
0: And with the theoretical interludes, how did you, uh, how did those come about or how, how did you think of those in the the structure of the book?
1: The idea behind the theoretical interludes was to try to take the issues of imperial episteme and put it onto a larger, larger frame. So, a great deal of imperial and colonial studies focuses, of course, on various asymmetries of power and the like. Um, but what I found, especially by considering the work of Peter Vandeveer and and the few other scholars who take the study of British engagements with South Asia and put them in the same context as British engagements with Britons, that is to 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 do a comparative study of the ways in which uh, Britons understood not only South Asians, but also themselves and find some some points of, of commonality as well as difference, then I thought it was important to then offer a theoretical framework in which comparison could be understood more, more generally. And hence, as the reader was thinking about these engagements that I was describing, they could think about the larger theoretical background of how comparison works for anyone and um and when they walked away from the book hopefully they would have a tool that would be uh useful in engaging in materials that might be uh also interesting to them
0: yeah yeah i think they're really successful too in the sense of uh you know if you are teaching a course and you don't have space to to include your whole book uh, they would be great examples to, to introduce these types of thinking and uh, issues of classification in comparison to to undergraduates. So I think anyone could really use those uh, in their courses.
1: And in uh, fact, the idea of using them comes out of my own teaching because it's mm. heavily borrowed from the work of Jonathan C. Smith, and, and I use Smith's work in, in my teaching all the time in order to... To evoke exactly these kind of this kind of thinking among my students.
0: Yeah, they were. I I really like that in the book. I think it's a successful method or strategy uh, that I hope others will follow. Um, could you talk a little bit about Chainpore, uh the, the nexus of villages that make up this area? Both, um, you know, what might somebody who's not familiar with South South Asia need to to know to understand kind of the, the broader context of what you're writing about. Um, but also, what what makes this uh, a, a successful example of thinking? This you you kind of mentioned the dearth of um, materials, but uh, other than that, why why chainport?
1: So chainport is a fascinating place to study for a number of, of different reasons. Um, in some ways, it might seem counterintuitive uh, because it's not Bengal, and uh, Bengal has had more than the lion's share of scholarship uh, about uh, British South Asia. Um, it's not uh, Uttar Pradesh, which represented a later stage in uh, British conquest in rule, and of course, uh, has uh, Delhi uh, and, and Agra as in former imperial centers, which makes it also very interesting as well as al uh, Bihar in in uh, a great deal of scholarship, whether it's historical uh, or contemporary, often gets overlooked in part because it's a place that a lot of non-Indian and even Indian scholars don't prefer to go uh, because it is perceived to be such a, a poor and, and violent place because of the casteism, the Naxalites, um, and for uh, some other reasons as well. And so it's been unfortunately quite overlooked in in a great deal of scholarship, although there are some scholars who have have made real efforts in that direction. So uh, as a result of that, there's a great deal of fascinating work to be done in Bihar that just hasn't happened so far. So Bihar offers a great deal of fascinating materials with which to work, and uh, work. is uh, an amazing place to study because of the fact that it is a village, but it's on the large side of a village. Uh, it actually would count as a town, according to the Indian census, but people routinely refer to it as Gao, as village. So it has a village sensibility, uh, and at the same time, it has a variety of historical and social markers that make it very prominent in the in the region. Um, and for a variety of different reasons, various British and Indian authors, painters, administrators, uh, officers took note of Chainpur. So it provides a, a place that has not been studied very well, that has a great deal of British era material committed to it, various representations, and that has not the attention of a great deal of published work since independence.
0: Hmm. Ex- extending from, uh, the, the sources, um, there is, there's a lot about South Asian religions and, and, and early representations in the formation of, uh, the history of religion as a, as a discipline, um, from, from Western intellectuals. And you expressly. uh, Say that these individuals people like Weber and uh, Mueller were reliant on the cartographers and the statisticians and the artists and the travelers um so could you talk a little bit about uh, these lower level individuals you you you've mentioned already what uh, what did their observations uh, what role did they play in the construction of religion in south asia and 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 then how does that inform or shape our uh, kind of broader history of religions in, in South Asia.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, so, what often happened was that let's just talk about a British Indian administrative level. You would have officers uh, and other civil servants who were responsible for uh, for uh, local issues, and they would make certain reports and. Uh, Make maps and uh, do other sorts of representations, which would then be uh, sent to their superiors. So, their superiors would have a bit of a sense of what's happening regionally, which would be sent up to their superiors, which would uh, allow them to have an understanding of what's happening provincially, which then would be sent to their superiors, which would allow them to understand what was happening in British India in general. Uh, So, there are those levels that are important to recognize. Um, and then there are the civilians who came through and who made their own depictions as well. So, for instance, the Daniels, uh, Thomas and William Danielle, an uncle-nephew uh, painting team came through in the late 18th century. Uh, they were interested in, in, in just making a, a career of their painting, and they thought that India was an opportunity for them. And they just happened to stop in, in, in Chainpur. Uh, they didn't just happen, actually. They went out of their way to go to Chainpur for reasons that aren't entirely clear, although we might guess. And so they also uh, leave their representations. Now, um, in terms of the representations of the administrators, uh, some of these reports that they created and some of the images that they made. Uh, sometimes found their ways quoted verbatim into reports of their superiors some of these uh, officers in their own career trajectory became superiors and some of them uh, published their work either through the the government or outside of the government so they truly became administrator-scholars uh, in in their careers and some of those works became quite influential for the British public, but also for the emerging Indian public as well. And uh, that can't be underestimated. Another way in which they became influential was that as uh, more Indians participated in the British Indian government, they also uh, took in these reports. They also were influenced by their perspectives and the inherited Uh, expectations and understandings that uh, came with government service. And after independence, many of these uh, civil servants' works uh, continue to be influential. So, for instance, Francis Buchanan, who did the first uh, comprehensive foot survey of Bihar and Bengal for the British in the uh, early 19th century, Uh, He's mentioned in the Archaeological Survey of India. He's mentioned in the Census of India uh, and in a number of other uh, websites for current Indian government uh, departments because he's seen to be the father, and that's often the language that's used, for their particular uh, particular discipline in, in the government. Hmm. So these folks had a, a variety of different types of impacts. And the Daniels actually um, had a profound impact because there were, the images they created of uh, South Asia became the most influential visual images, arguably for uh, the entirety of the British Empire. And they found those images found their way not only into galleries, but also into, onto China, onto tiles that were put into people's homes um, and they were reproduced in all sorts of different ways. Hmm.
0: Now, this nexus of religion, science, and empire that you uh, highlight in the title—you um, say—I'm going to read a brief quote. You say we cannot know the notions of religion and science without considering the mutually imbricated histories of their codependent uh, coalescence. So, uh, can, can we? Can you help us start to unpack this? Um, Your you're not really talking about science here, but what you call scientism. So um, perhaps we can start there. What do you mean by scientism uh, versus science, perhaps? Um, how did it inform imperial projects and authority? Um, and ultimately, what does this have to do with uh, religion? How do we how do we end up with religion through these projects?
1: Sure. Uh, actually, if I could just I'll just flip the order a little bit. Let me sure. just talk about um, science and religion and then we'll get to scientism. Um so, unfortunately, there's a, there's a common uh, expectation, not only in the public, but also among many scholars, that religion and science are necessarily oppositional and, and, and foe-like. Uh, and that the, the rise of empirical science in the 18th and 19th centuries with the Enlightenment um, necessarily came with the diminution of religion as rationality. Increasingly spread its rosy fingers of dawn over the landscape, well, the intellectual landscape of of Europe and ultimately the world, um, and uh, in in that that narrative, that master narrative, uh, overlooks a, a variety of really important dynamics uh, that that shouldn't be overlooked. So for the for the first thing, it overlooks the uh, the way in which the development of what Europeans called science was deeply implicated in the history of European imperialism and colonialism uh, in ways that, that can't be underestimated. The, the intellectual labor and the physical labor that many uh, colonized, imperially dominated people provided to scientific projects um, has often been overlooked. And the necessity of having uh, imperial domains in foreign places in order to do certain types of of uh, scientific projects has also been too often overlooked. Um, it's also important to recognize that the, what we understand today as as religion, the way we understand that term developed in many ways in uh, a mutually uh, interconnected conversation not only with secularism as many scholars have pointed out, but also with notions of science, uh, the notion that somehow religion was irrational as opposed to the rationality of science, uh, is, is something of a product of, of this period. So when the British came to South Asia, uh, there was some sense, uh, there had to be an ex- appreciation for what they understood as the civilizations of South Asia and the, uh, the creation of the Taj Mahal and, and, and other uh, examples of great uh, culture. But at the same time, they needed to have an understanding of why that, that would legitimate and justify British rule. And part of it was the sense that Hindus and Muslims were irreparably against one another because of their uh, their firm rootedness in the irrationality of religion. So uh, not all Britons thought of things this way, but but many did. And that's one reason why religion figured so prominently in, in British imaginations from the very beginning of their uh, epistemic projects. Um, so while all of this is, is happening, uh, there is this rising notion of scientism. Scientism refers to, as I suggested before, the the authority of the set of disciplines associated with the term science the the authority that those disciplines have in society Uh, a hegemonic authority which goes largely unquestioned that these forms of knowledge are the truest way of understanding the human and natural worlds and so uh religion then becomes something that is uh not an avenue for that. Uh, try to that uh, eff, those efforts of understanding, and in fact, is often seen to be oppositional to understanding the world. Um, and then we have narratives of medieval European Catholicism and uh, the uh, the victims of uh, the Catholic Church, like Galileo and the like, that help to affirm that that portrayal. So that's that's where the the, the the intersections of religion, science, and empire come from that are related to, uh, that are mentioned in the title.
0: Yeah. Now for uh, listeners, just so they can kind of follow along, um, what you do through the the, most of the remainder of the book is uh, look at the development of specific disciplines and uh, systems of knowledge, uh, such as cartography, ethnography, uh, anthropology, and uh, some others. Um, you begin with um, cartography and uh, I believe you, you kind of follow a chronological approach. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, the differences between uh, British Imperial cartography? Um, you compare this with Mughal uh, cartography um, and, and specifically how, how were maps used to mark uh, religious identities? Yeah, the, uh, indeed
1: the, the, the idea behind the, the structure of the chapters was to demonstrate to audiences the way that the disciplines that we take so for granted in the academy uh, were actually forming in the late 18th and mostly in the 19th century, and that they were forming uh, not as some sort of uh, natural expression of the development of knowledge, but in part through the needs of imperial projects. So cryptography, uh, which has been described by by some as the queen of all sciences, because it seems to provide this, as it were, God's eye view of the earth that seems to be so transparently true. Although we may all have problems with our uh, Google maps apps (laughs) on our smartphones. um, Nevertheless, the fact that we are, that we, we are, uh, so bothered and uh, so surprised that we would have problems with that perhaps suggests the ways in which so many people have an inherent faith, if I can use the term, uh in cartographic knowledge, uh and indeed uh the the development of Google Earth uh and the ability to to telescope in and out of uh, various landscape scenes from above is a, a nice expression. It's kind of the culmination of this faith in cartography, which is one of the first beginnings of the development of scientism in some ways. Um, and so uh, the, uh, the use of cartography in British India was very often tied to the various other uh, endeavors, uh, because cartography often served as uh, as the way of expressing various concerns that uh, came up in uh, British uh, imperial endeavors. So, for instance, uh, um, if there was uh, a census of India, perhaps, uh, then maps might be created in order to project, as it were, the results of the census onto this cartog- cartographical space, and by choosing a particular frame for that space, this is something that Edney brings out in his Mapping Empire book. By choosing a particular frame, uh, one creates a kind of iconic view of what British India is and hence what eventually uh, Indian nationalists will claim India is. Um, and so the uh, the map becomes a very important projection screen for people's understandings. And onto that are going to be projected various understandings of religion. So one of the examples, a very, very prosaic example, is of a mid-19th century revenue map that was created uh, for the sake of trying to describe the borders of Chainpur so that the revenue collectors could have a better, do a better job of things because every village uh, in Bihar was meant to be uh, mapped in this way. But these maps, these revenue maps weren't just of the borders, interestingly enough. They were also of various other types of social information, which were plotted onto the map. And one of the things, uh, one of the topics that is uh, plotted onto this particular map is of the mosques and temples of, of, of Chainport. And the question would be, why? Why mark these elements? There isn't any evidence that they're being marked for revenue purposes, but they simply represent some sort of social fact which uh, the revenue collect revenue collectors and their mappers uh, under their employee uh, consider to be important and it's not just the Chainport revenue map that shows this, but all of the uh, the revenue maps for all of the villages around Chainport show it as well and why that particular element is says something to us in the 21st century is the fact that the dargas or the Sufi tombs that are also marked on the map that they are not marked as dargas uh, even though anybody on the ground would have easily identified it as such but rather they're they're marked as mosques um, so they are fitted into a binary of Hindu Muslim when And in fact, dargas are very important spaces of Hindu-Muslim religious interaction on a daily scale that, again, is is entirely well-known to folks on the ground, um, but nevertheless, don't make it onto the map. And so the map, this particular map, demonstrates nicely to us the way that uh, British Indian administrators were caught in this binary of Hindu-Muslim as mutually exclusive categories. Okay, and so that's that's one other element that's so important for scientism is that it's it's more than just expressing the authority of science but it's also the appropriation of certain scientific notions and 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 absorbing them into society in a broader way and and one of the the scientific notions that we find in, in scientific taxonomies from European models is that all taxons that is all classifications have to be mutually exclusive so a uh, a uh, 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 a uh, a platypus for instance cannot be a mammal and a uh, a aquatic animal a fish at the same time, even though it lives in the water and even though it has fur, so it would seem as though it would fit both classes it's not allowed to fit both classes. And so uh, zoologists struggled for some decades to figure out how to fit a platypus into a category because it didn't fit the scientific categories and it wasn't allowed to fit in between uh, two categories or two, two, two categories simultaneously. And so this map demonstrates nicely how a Darga was not allowed to be both Hindu and Muslim. It had to be either Hindu or Muslim.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, the next two chapters, you focus on uh, travelogues, and uh, you look at both what you call uh, Christocentric travel writing um, and then humanist travel writing. Can, can you talk about um, ways of representation that come through in this and, and the different purposes uh, between uh, kind of pseudo-theological accounts and uh, humanist accounts and, and how religion gets played out in these differences?
1: Yeah, the key point that I was trying to bring out there in making that distinction is that the basis of the comparison, and that's something that that Jay Z Smith draws our attention to, is is what is the basis of our comparisons? What what is the interest that underlies the comparison, and what is the the key of interpretation that's used to make sense of the difference that's being uh, that's being drawn out? Um, that. For Christocentric travel writers, uh, they're, they're starting from a, a certain type of Christian theology that uh, establishes a certain difference between those who are Christians and those who are not. Whereas the humanist travel writers don't necessarily start with that perspective and might find other reasons for comparison, other reasons for uh, difference than, than that theological one.
0: What do so what do these accounts look like and how how do they differ in their content in their explanation and representation of South Asia?
1: Well, uh one of the elements that I bring out in the theoretical interlude is is uh, an attention to categories and the way in which categories are formed and the hierarchies that may or may not be included in those categories. So for many of the the travelog writers uh The uh, categories are uh, are often based on a the theological premise, which is uh, those, for instance, a, a kind of a larger distinction between those who believe in uh, in Jesus and those who don't. So Hindus immediately fall into the those who don't category, but Muslims fall into those who do category um, and then that category gets distinguished between those who believe in Jesus as Messiah and those who do not. So Muslims fall into the, those who do not category in that case and Christians into those who do. And then there can be often a ranking as to which are higher or lower uh, of those three categories. Um, and, uh, and so you can see the ways in which the theological key of interpretation uh, and of comparison is playing in such an important role there. Um, there are, there are, uh, some who, um, ultimately, uh, don't see it as necessarily hierarchical and have a very pluralistic theological perspective with the sense that all religions are necessarily, uh, approaching God from their own direction and none are, are, uh, better or worse than others. But that is, uh, hard to find examples of travel writers, uh, uh christological travel travel writers who have that perspective among the humanist travel writers uh there are a variety of of different kind of categories and comparisons that that can uh, that can be drawn out um and because it's not as tied to a theological perspective religion may or may not be very central into their notions of comparison and um and with a very basic understanding that uh starting with a common ground of humanity um, that also plays a a very important uh, role in, in in demonstrating a a different sort of comparison among other humanist travel writers.
0: One of the other things that arises in these accounts uh, is this, the notion of authority or authenticity from, from being uh, on on what you say on the spot. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about, uh, the, the role of, of, of being there uh, and, and how that kind of asserts uh, authority for the, the person making the representations.
1: Yeah, so that's uh, an, another important element that uh, particularly feeds into the humanist travelogues as well. Uh, this, what David Arnold calls an ocular authority, uh, Foucault also talks about this, The power of, or rather the authority of having been on the spot, of having seen it for yourself. So we find that in medieval Europe, for instance, uh, the uh, authority was often reserved for various sources that could track themselves back to uh, traditions, uh, particularly traditions of the church. Um, and an authority associated with, with certain institutions and certain types of learning. In this case, that doesn't entirely disappear, uh, but the uh, uh, that authority can actually be undermined by uh, empirical observation that seems to challenge the uh, the findings or the, the the conclusions of various authorities. So the Danielle's the uh, uncle nephew travel uh, the. the uh, artist team that I mentioned earlier. Um, they they demonstrated this really nicely. Uh, they are t- travelers. Uh, their images are meant to depict their travels, um, and they are following in the footsteps of uh, another uh, travel artist by the name of William Hodges, uh, who actually had been a uh, artist aboard uh, two of Captain Cook's voyages. So he had a certain type of uh, authority because of that. But they were very critical of him because even though both sets of artists were following the trope of the picturesque in their in their artistry, uh, that is following certain notions of how to construct a landscape scene and an allowance to exaggerate certain things in order to make it more attractive to the viewer. So even though both sets of artists were following this notion of the art, of the picturesque, the Daniels are more infused with the notion of the on the spot, um, with the the quote unquote accurate representation of what they are, are portraying, and uh, and so they uh, we have the uh, the journal of the younger of the two. Uh, daniel's and he 's constantly critical of Hodges because uh, he thinks that he doesn 't do accurate presentations, and so he 's constantly saying, "Oh, we went to this site, and Uncle and I drew these these images that are much more accurate than what Hodges uh, had to offer uh, so you can see in in just a change in in a decade or so between Hodges and uh, the Daniels that there's uh, a, a slowly galvanizing grip of the empirical on these representations and the authority of the on the spot, uh, in these, uh, these presentations.
0: Now you've alluded to, uh, the, the taxonomical ideals of, of natural science and how they inform British systems of classification a little bit already. Um, you focus on this in one chapter, uh, within issues of the census and, uh, statistics of, of local peoples. Can you tell us a little bit about how how these uh, senses formed identities? What what identities were available to people responding to these? Um, perhaps how these categories changed over time.
1: Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, as per your your previous question, that indeed there were some of these forms of, of knowledge existed before the British came under the Mughals and under others and uh, a census uh, or at least a, uh, a count of, of people was certainly something that existed under pre- previous regimes. But what differs with the British, uh, which is nothing that was seen at all in, in pre-British South Asia was that the British sought in 1872 to count every single individual Indian on one night. Um, And that effort to count everyone, uh, no matter what their caste, no matter what their religion, no matter what their gender or their education status or their location, uh, was absolutely unique. Uh, They weren't successful uh, in in doing it in one night, but by 1881, they were able to do it in one night. And of course, the census... Uh, then, as now in India and in the United States, relies on a set of questions that the enumerators ask the occupants of the house. And those questions are predetermined and uh, the answers are not. So some, uh, it's important to recognize that one of the, the few questions that were asked in 1872 um, and that were asked throughout the, the entirety of the British Empire was, what is your religion? And uh, that question was asked of every member of the house, um, and anybody could answer any way that they liked. So you could say Muslim, you could say Hindu, or Christian, or Sikh, or I don't know, or I don't have one, um, and, uh, and that would be recorded. Some people, for instance, said uh, uh, Muslim Brahmin, and that was recorded. So that would suggest a real pluralism, but what happened When these uh, slips of paper on which all this information was recorded was then tabulated and aggregated back in the district offices uh, so that the numbers could be crunched and sent on up the line administratively was that there was no pigeonhole. That's literally what they put these slips of paper into pigeonholes. Uh, There was no pigeonhole for Muslim Brahmin. Uh, There was simply a pigeonhole for uh, Hindu Brahmin. Uh, or for Muslim. And so the, the pluralism that was obvious in the recording was not obvious in the tabulation, because the tabulation relied on these mutually exclusive categories. You couldn't count in more than one category. Just as in the United States, uh, there was no ability for somebody, when answering the race question, somebody like Barack Obama to say that they were both uh, black and white. That was not possible. You had to choose one or the other. Um, that was the case in the United States until 2000. Um, so uh, that was the case throughout the, the British Empire that you um, you were going to be counted only in one category or the other. Now, as the the empire went on, and as Indians became interested in participating in the democracy that the British seemed to hold out as uh, as a as a hope for the future. The, uh, the need of course was to, was to find constituencies because democratic politics relies on identifying and speaking to certain constituencies and, and addressing their interests and and so the idea of finding religiously based constituencies um, in part based on census data that suggested where various religious communities Communities were most densely situated, um, and also based in part on this notion that religious identity was central to the identity of, of most Indians, which was uh, perpetrated by uh, British writers as well as some Indian ones. Um, who meant that as Indian uh, democratic politics began to to form, uh, there was a, a strong religious element to that, and um, and we actually have. Various Indian groups uh, fighting to get included in certain categories and excluded from others. So, for instance, the Hindu Mahasabha made a variety of petitions to the British government in the 1930s that Sikhs and Jains should be included as Hindus in the counts of uh, the All India accounts of religion. Uh, meanwhile, you had some uh, Sikh and Jain groups resisting that and demanding to have their own categories. And and that level of engagement of South Asians in in the census project, in the in the scientific taxonomical project of the census, demonstrates well how the effort to resist British hegemony led many South Asians to actually participate in the epistemic hegemony that the British had laid the groundwork for.
0: You move on in the next chapter, uh you, you title it A Raja, A Ghost, and a Tribe. Uh, almost sounds like the start of a, of a joke. But can you tell us how local narratives were used to explain difference?
1: Well, uh, in a variety of ways. And so what that uh, that chapter is trying to demonstrate is how uh, both ethnog- ethnology and folklore studies were beginning to coalesce in the late 19th century um, and particularly in folklore studies, uh, a very interesting uh, impetus was was gathering force to to pay attention to the local and to understand these these uh, these narratives uh, in their own terms, and to not force them actually into quite uh, necessarily into f- fitting into the previous categories as some of the previous disciplines had, had forced. Um, and so the, this, this narrative of, of the, the dead Brahm, uh, the, the, the ghost of a Brahmin uh, who t- exacts a vengeance on the local Raja, which is a very important narrative today in Chainpur, uh, we find uh, being repeatedly r- recorded uh, from the 19th century onward f- from, by visitors to Chainpur who were interested in the, these matters and in the past, and uh, we have folks like William Crook, who uh, reported uh, that narrative in a couple of his publications um, as part of an effort to, to, to demonstrate the varieties of perspectives uh, about the past and, uh, and about religion uh, on the ground. And um Crook's an interesting figure because he worked very closely uh with an Indian interlocutor who provided quite a bit of of intellectual capital to these endeavors um, and uh crook had his own uh, blind spots, but he was very interested in 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 avoiding the kind of grand uh, claims uh that were made um, and his comparative project culminates in uh, a, a, a two-volume set uh, about North Indian folklore and religion, which really provides almost an encyclopedic comparative uh, approach uh, in which uh, he breaks down various types of stories that say about the uh, the, the living dead and, um, and suggests uh, various types of themes that, that get drawn out without any type of... of um, comparing them in any kind of hierarchical way as being better or worse or more superstitious or more true or anything like that. Uh, He, uh, he represents uh, an interesting development in this, uh, in this British episteme.
0: The final discipline you look at uh, is archaeology and you look at the role of uh, institutions. So uh, things like the archeological survey of India uh, the Royal Society, the Asiatic Society, the Indian Museum. How, how did the development of institutions facilitate uh, the, the promotion of uh, scientific discovery um, and, and preserve these religious identities that, that they uh, classified in particular ways?
1: Yeah, the development of these institutions is another uh, incredibly interesting element and dimension of of these forces I'm trying to describe, Uh, because, uh, again, many of these institutions were formed on a voluntary basis by uh, British administrators who uh, had the study of various elements of, of British, of Indian religion and culture as part of their hobby um and uh it certainly could have some fairly negative effects but it's interesting that uh how many of them uh, set their minds to this uh, endeavors and and as part of those endeavors they often formed uh communities such as the Asiatic society of bengal right which is one of the oldest example of one of these learned societies um and these learned societies very much parallel what's happening back in in the metropole uh so you have uh, the royal society uh, as a model for many of these societies, uh, but there are new societies that are being formed in London and other places in in uh, in, in England as well as other parts of Europe at the same time. So. Uh, it's also important to recognize the ways in which many Indians contributed to these societies as well. So, For instance, the Indian Museum is an interesting example. Uh, although there were no Indians on the the, the administrative board when uh, the Asiatic Society of Bengal came up with the idea for the Indian Museum, uh, Indians would contribute very importantly to the ASB and would also have a hand in, in uh, the Indian Museum. So, uh, But that those endeavors are never entirely – well, those endeavors have often uh, important co- connections to the government. So many of the people involved with them are actually government employees. The only reason they are in India, if they're not Indian themselves, is because they're in the employee of the British Indian government. But also the Indian Museum, for instance, uh, came about because members of the Asiatic Society of Bengal decided that they would like to donate their collections. So the collections that they personally were developing uh, as part of their own hobbies, they wanted to to donate those to the government uh, only with the expectation that the government would establish a museum. Um, and they didn't want to call it the Indian Museum. They protested when the uh, government said that that was going to be the name. But that was the name that the government insisted upon. And so there it was. So these institutions play their own role. Um, they play their own role in helping to uh, promote certain forms of knowledge to make them more popular. Um, many of these learned societies also have uh, global connections Uh, So they are sharing their reports um, across the globe. Also, when the Census of India, for instance, uh, and the Archaeological Survey of India, when they publish certain results, they often send copies to these institutions, both in India and outside India. And so there is really a global circuit for the circulation of this knowledge that has developed in this globalized world that the British Empire helped to bring to, to existence.
0: You wrap the book up on a contemporary reflection. You you look at Chainpore today, and I'm wondering if you could tell us what some of the social consequences of British scientism and specifically the construction of the category of religion uh, within Chainpore society.
1: So... There is a, a very robust set of knowledges that exist in Chainport today. And, uh, some of them are not at all connected to that British originated episteme. Um, but others are, and particularly those that we find that are perpetrated in the school system. Um, there are a rising number of private schools as, and a better quality government schools in Chainport today. And they very often take These basic elements of the scientific way of uh, understanding the world and uh, and and propagated in a variety of different ways, Uh, biology, chemistry, uh, uh, mathematics uh, are just some of the disciplines that are taught in chain schools in ways that are closely approximate what uh, was developed during British India and um, are quite distinct from what uh, existed before the, the British Empire. Um, in terms of some of the expectations about uh, religion and the like, uh, there are ways in which uh, those are also communicated. Um, there is uh, a, a, in very interestingly often an oversight of, of local uh, local examples in which some of these uh, differences in religious categories don't necessarily work, such as the continuing functionality of the Sufi tombs and the ways in which Hindus and Muslims uh, pray there uh, the uh, the school's approach to religion often uh, doesn't uh, pay much attention to that. Um, not that there's a lot of attention usually on that particular theme but we do find that the sciences uh, are taught in uh, a fairly uncritical manner and, and accepted f- for uh, how they are.
0: Now, for so students of religion, I think one of the, the big uh, points or, 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 or ways of uh, thinking about this book um, is this idea of the various modes of a comparison and then how this affects our categories. So I wonder if you could kind of just uh, – uh, Think about th- how each of these chapters kind of expresses one of these modes. You and, and you're, you're, I don't know if you did this on purpose uh, or if this was kind of a later realization, but you you um, you follow uh, Jay Z Smith's um, uh, categorical uh, um, system from in, a compa- in comparison, to Magic Dwells. Very closely was that uh, was that an afterthought or did you realize that or was that a kind of a structuring model as you went into this project? Um, but how how does your data kind of um, I guess reflect or substantiate what Jay Z Smith is is talking about in this uh, issue of classification?
1: Yeah, I think. Uh J. Z Smith's notions work out fairly well in, in what I'm showing. Uh, the notion of differences between statistical comparison, encyclopedic comparison, ethnographic, uh, help to understand how these different representations create different types of comparisons. Uh, not only, uh, although the categories might be the same, the way that they uh, relate to one another can be very different. Um, and so it it works out uh fairly well in trying to understand the mechanics of the differences between these different forms. It also, I think, demonstrates well Jay-Z's point that there isn't one particular form of comparison that is immune from from major problems. Uh, Each form of comparison is problematic. But at the same time, uh, comparison is at the very heart of all forms of knowledge. Uh, And so we can't just sidestep the issue just because there isn't any ideal way of doing comparison. We have to recognize that it's at the heart of of all knowledge. And so we have to understand how it's at the heart of the forms of knowledge that we're pursuing. And then also recognize how uh, it necessarily suffers from certain uh, disadvantages uh, no matter which choice we make.
0: Peter, uh, excellent book, and thank you for all your efforts. You could, you could really tell uh, reading through this that you it was a tremendous effort. Um, but before we let you go, um, I'm sure listeners would be very eager to hear what kind of things you're working on now, uh, what projects you might have coming out in the future.
1: Well, uh, this uh, track of, of studies of, of Chainpur, as it were, uh, and of religious uh, identity in South Asia has always been my main track of my scholarship. But I've also had another track, uh, which is uh, on Islamophobia in the United States. And so what I'd like to do is actually uh, marry those two tracks together to bring together um, something about Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment uh, within the uh, British empirical system. And uh, the contours of that I'm still working out, but a sabbatical coming up this semester uh, should help me, uh, give me some time to, to think about it.
0: Mm, Great. That that sounds uh, wonderful, too. So good luck. And uh, perhaps you can come back and talk about that project.
1: Well, that'd be great. Thank you so much for your interest in this one. Yeah.
0: Thanks again, Peter. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Peter Gottschalk about his book, Religion, Science and Empire, Classifying Hinduism and Islam in British India, published with Akshay.